you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. As we look upon Mary's song, the Magnificat, we have heard it sung. We have heard it in the message paraphrase of the Bible. If you would take your copy of God's Word and again turn with me to Luke chapter 1 starting in verse 46. Well, Dawson, it is beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I don't know what Friday and Saturday was like for your home, but at least Friday morning was the time of building snowmen and a lot of snowball fights that we had at our house. And so I'm glad to know that this is just what Alabama, it's just, this is December in Alabama, right? So <clears throat> our boys are, are glad that we've moved to a place that uh, this is how Christmas will greet them every year. No, it's been, it's been great. We are so excited to have this type of season of Christmas as we, God has brought us here. We were together with some family members. My mom, my in-laws have been in this weekend. So there's a lot of festivities. We have two birthdays in December that we celebrate together. And so this past weekend was a good bit of festivities. There was a good bit of, of fun we had Christmas music, again, as the soundtrack at our home that uh, we have been blessed by the church to be able to stay in the, one of the mission houses that is adjacent here to the church. And so if you would have gotten close to our house, you would have heard uh, the soundtrack of Christmas. There is a study that came out, really it's just kind of a survey of the most popular, top 25 most popular Christmas songs. And just the top five, I am sure that you know and we heard this past weekend. The first one is uh, Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. Number two, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Number three, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Number four, Winter Wonderland. Number five, White Christmas. Out of those songs and those that I didn't even mention, what, what is your favorite Christmas song, I wonder? If you would have continued on that list, you would come to top 25 Christmas songs, the most that have been played in the last five years. And number 25 is Sir Paul McCartney's Wonderful Christmas Time. And if that is your favorite song, would you please see me after the service so we can do some pastoral counseling, I guess. That song has always irked me. I love the Beatles. I love Paul. I love Ringo. I love George. I love John. But something about that song has always just grated on my nerves. A couple years ago, that song became uh, stuck in my mind because one of my boys found a YouTube video of the chipmunks singing, <laughs> simply having a wonderful Christmas time. And that, my friends, will drive you bananas. It will. So what's in your top five list? What's your favorite song? I want us to not focus on earthly songs as, as memorable as they are, as galvanizing and bringing about a community that they are, but I want us to focus our hearts upon an eternal song, a song that was upon the lips of the mother of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We know it from its Latin phrase, Magnificat, which is the translation of the first three words of Mary's song. My soul magnifies, the Magnificat. N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, he says this in his commentary upon this passage. It is one of the most famous songs in Christianity. 
It's been whispered in monasteries, chanted in cathedrals, recited in small remote churches by evening candlelight, and set to music with trumpets and kettle drums by Bach. It is the gospel before the gospel, a fierce, bright shout of triumph months before Bethlehem, 30 years before Calvary and Easter. It goes with a swing and a clap and a stamp. It's all about God and it's all about revolution. The Magnificat, Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary said, she sung, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he is mighty. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The context of this song is an encounter between two unlikely mothers. A portrait of contrast in many ways. Elizabeth, an unlikely mother because of her age, an unlikely mother because of the disappointment of not being able to have a child. A portrait of contrast in the sense that Elizabeth's son will be the one that closes the Old Testament age, bridges to the one who will open up the new covenant. Mary, young, exuberant, penniless, poverty-stricken, Mary, in the midst of a small-town scandal, as all of the surrounding community would have said, did you see Mary? I can't believe Mary and Joseph. I never would have thought Joseph would have been a man like that. All erupts in this small-town scandal and this portrait of contrast, Mary and Elizabeth, Mary, whose son will be the savior of all of humanity who would trust in him. Mary, whose son will be the one who ushers in the kingdom of God. Mary and Elizabeth. The lyrics of Mary's song are a lyric that, as N.T. Wright says, revolutionizes and challenges the status quo in so many ways. Looking upon the very lyrics of the song, you will discover a reversal theme in the Magnificat. The first that I want you to discover of this theme is the social reversal that Mary sings of. Mary's song is, is rich with scriptural allusions, seven scriptural allusions to the Psalms, allusions to the prophet Isaiah, to Habakkuk, to Genesis, to Hannah's song, another unexpected mother in 1 Samuel chapter 2. It shows the piety, does it not? It shows the faithfulness of Mary, that as the Holy Spirit comes upon her, as she bursts forth with song, the raw material that the Holy Spirit has to use to compose this song of praise is one that is rich with the Old Testament. As she sings a song of her son's coming that will usher in the New Testament as we know it, 
She has the Old Testament scriptural background and really wealth of, of wisdom that she sings this song, a, a song of, of, of social reversal. The first reversal is really the reversal of her being the one who will be the mother of the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, there are many ways that God in his infinite wisdom could send Jesus in that first century way that, that one of the issues that the religious establishment has with Jesus is that he comes from a place of, of no prestige. He comes from a place of no position. He comes from a place with no esteem. To Mary? Not a, not a priest wife. God in his infinite wisdom could have sent Jesus to, to the social and religious elite of the day, to a lawyer's wife. That would have probably have gained the clout. He would have been able to be in the in crowd in that first century world, but that's not what God in his infinite wisdom does. He gives the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to be birthed in this astonishing way in the womb of this poor, penniless, peasant teenager who was whispered about in the small town scandal, and she says, generations will call me blessed. Oh, generations were talking about her then, from the younger generations to the older generations. They were talking about her and the scandal that would have ensued when she began to show. But now we still, 2,000 years later, are talking about the faithfulness of Jesus' mother, Mary. And we still see her as an example today. Now Mary says that many are concerned in her song about making a name for themselves. Notice what she sings in verse 51, that God scatters the proud. In verse 52, that he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. In verse 53, that the rich he has sent away empty. All of these values would have been values that that religious establishment of Jesus' day would have thought would have been good indications of God's blessing. That he blesses in their mind those who have might, that those who have position, those who have prestige, and Jesus is coming in the song that Mary is singing to reverse the social expectations that they had been so accustomed to. There's another critique that's political in nature in Mary's song. John Ortberg, who is a pastor at Menlo Park in uh, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church outside of Hollywood, California, commenting on this passage, says that it's very difficult to, to read the words of Mary that he's brought down the mighty from their thrones without seeing that this really is a critique of the one who sat upon the throne, Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great would not have necessarily heard Mary sing this song, but he heard of the one she sings of. As the Magi come and they're longing to know where is the king of the Jews going to be born, Herod heard that and said, I'm the king of the Jews. I'm Herod the Great. Well, Herod the Great in the first century world, he was one who instituted this kind of levying of, of taxes upon the poorest of the poor to be able to build this temple. He was one who had alienated many of the elite to get to his place of prominence within that first century culture. He was hated by both poor and hated by rich also. From the poor to the rich, he was hated. 
So much so that he planned that when he died, he gave orders for 70 of the most elite uh, citizens of his kingdom to be executed so he can ensure that there would be mourning and grief when he dies. This is the greatness that Herod desired and that Herod had. And so here's Mary, little Mary, singing this song to this leader who had outlasted, outsmarted, outmaneuvered, and outfoxed all of his rivals. And then the magi come telling them of the, of the very substance of the song that Mary is singing of. And he says, I'm the king of the Jews. There can be no other king of the Jews. So he says to, uh, as, as Jesus is born, go into Bethlehem. All of the two-year-olds and under, they need to, it's just this genocide by all accounts that Herod brings about, which is a, a good reminder that at times there is a hallmark sentimentality that comes with Christmas. There is, as David said in his opening, that hope is, is more than just the Pollyannish. Put on a good face, be happy. Cheer, cheer, cheer. At times, there, there is a temptation to think of Christmas there. But, but Christmas, the coming of Christ, brought about true grief and true tears in actual families. So grief and death and loss, it has always been mixed with the joy of the world. And so some of you this Christmas season are coming to Christmas with real pain and with real tears and you hear of all the festivities and you say to yourself, I don't want to go to another party. We're talking about all these Christmas carols. I want to cut off the radio because there is not a song of joy in my heart. And I'm here to tell you that Christmas is for you. It is for you in your pain. It's for you in the despondency that you're going through. Whether you have joy in your heart right now or whether you have true grief in your heart that this is the first Christmas that you're going to spend it without that grandmother, without that grandfather, without that loved one, without that son, without that daughter. Christmas is a time that God meets us in our pain. This is the song that Mary sings in the midst of the context in which Mary would sing it. And it is important because Mary is countering the social expectations of that day. And she is still challenging the social expectations of our day. She says in this song, he's going to bring down the mighty from their thrones. And he's going to exalt those of humble estate. He's not, she's not just singing about herself. She is singing about the very ministry of Christ Jesus. And it's important for you and me to hear this in the 21st century. It's very tempting to us, to, us to, to jump into the current and the stream that what really matters is to live a Herod-like life. That what really matters is to make a name for ourselves, to fulfill our agenda, to climb our ladder, and to, in some ways, build our kingdom. Now, we're too... Uh, refined to ever call ourselves great, but we do things in such a way to make our name and to make our way the way of greatness. And Mary sings this song, and it's a song that challenges the song of our culture, that threatens that song of upper mobility in some respects. 
See, pride in our culture is applauded as ambition. Pride in our culture is oftentimes celebrated as assertiveness. Pride oftentimes, not just in the culture outside of the church, but within the church, pride is oftentimes seen as a sense of achievement to be applauded at the anointing of God upon an individual or upon a church. And then we need to hear Mary sing. That he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The child that Mary sings of is a child that will be born, that will live a perfect life, who would learn and be tutored in the, in the industry of carpentry at the foot of his father, Joseph. He would be baptized by the very one that leaps in the womb, John the Baptist. And he goes and he teaches and he ministers. And we get to Matthew chapter 5, we get to Matthew chapter 6 and following. And there's this compilation of the greatest hits of Jesus' ministry and his teaching. He goes to this mountain, he sits down and he begins to speak. And this is what he says at the very outset of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. Matthew doesn't tell us if Mary was in that audience, if Mary was in that crowd, on that sermon there. We don't know that, but we know that she would have heard her son teach. And I wonder when she heard the Beatitudes, if there wasn't a faint semblance of, of, of recognition. Ah, I know those words. I used to sing them to my son. You see, the very words that Mary sings here will be the very words that, that Jesus is speaking in his ministry of this social reversal. But there's more to the song than just societal reversal. There is a spiritual reversal that I want you to discover in the song that Mary sings here. See, this song is a, is a threat. It's a threat to the well-off. It's a threat to the power-hungry. It's a threat because Jesus is coming and he's bringing about a ministry that Mary sings is good news for the hungry and not first and foremost for the rich. Good news for the humbled and not the exalted, the weak and not the strong. And what this is, is, is it is a coming attractions. It is a prophecy of sorts of the type of ministry that her son would have. I don't know if you have the opportunity to go see movies often. Yesterday we were so excited. We had been doing all the Friday things. And then we said, well, let's just get out of the house a little bit. So we drove to the movie theater to see an early movie. And we got out and it said, due to inclement weather, the movie theater is closed. We were, we were, we were very disappointed about that. Now, I had gotten to the movie theater really early because this is the type of pastor that you have. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ways that you could go see a movie. If you see a movie and you see that it's going to start at 7, you might interpret that, that I can get there in my seat at 7.20 and not miss any of the movie. Why? Because of the previews, because of the coming attractions. Now, for me, there's only one way to see a movie, and that's to be there 10 minutes before it starts because I want to be there at the first 
coming attraction. I want to see. There's something about that. Even when I was a little boy, my mom would take me to the movies. I just wanted to be there. I wanted to see the coming attractions. I wanted to see what the new movies are long before YouTube, long before Google. You would sit there and you would say, oh, there's going to be a new Star Wars movie. I didn't know this. And it was just so much excitement. I still had that when I go to the movies. Mary sings. She sings the coming attractions of, of, of the very ministry of her son. She sings this song that really is a preview of the type of ministry that Jesus is going to have. That his greatest critique is going to be really for the rich and for the powerful. The ones who didn't exactly know what to do with Jesus are the ones that were at the top of the religious ladder of that first century world. The ones that came and said, this guy is a friend of sinners and a glutton, those were the religious leaders of the day that had it all together. So I don't know how Mary would have heard the critiques that her son was given, but I know that there's some Marys in this room, there's some mothers in this room that know what it's like to hear their son publicly critiqued, and that, that goes straight to the heart, doesn't it? But I wonder when Mary would hear the religious leaders of the day critiquing her son, I wonder if she was thinking to herself, I I sung about this. This was the song that I, I, I really ushered in my son's coming. So she's probably not surprised when she hears from the disciples, do you know what your son did? There was this woman right at noonday who was by a well And your son went and sat next to him, or next to her, and said, there is some water that I can give to you, and if you would drink of that water, you will never thirst again. And do you know, Mary, mother of Jesus, that that was a Samaritan woman? Do you know the litany of past relationships? And I wonder if Mary would hear that and say, I told you so. I wonder when she heard of what we see reported in John chapter 8 where a woman is called in adultery and, and Jesus very famously said, you who have no sin, throw and cast the first stone. And they all walk away, the oldest and the wisest first. And he kneels down and he looks her in the eyes in the midst of the depth of despair that she has. Tears flowing down her, her mud-drenched face. And said, where are those that condemn you now? I don't condemn you either. And I wonder when people reported that back to Mary, if she didn't say, I told you he would do that. I wonder when they heard or she heard about this little guy by the name of Zacchaeus that really got completely undignified, climbed up the top of a sycamore tree, and Jesus, the Son of God, would say to that tax collector, get down out of that tree. Why? Because I'm coming to eat with you. And everybody would have gasped because no self-respecting religious leader of the day would have eaten with a tax collector. But that's the type of ministry that Mary son is going to have, one that goes to the outcast, one who goes to those that are outside of the religious establishment of that day, one who would go to those that do not have it all together. Prior to me coming to be your pastor, I had a routine back outside of Jackson, Mississippi, where around two o'clock, three o'clock, I would oftentimes have, coming back from a visit, going back from the hospital, coming back from something, or even just leaving the office, and I would go down to this gas station that was very close to the church, and I would get holy water of Coke Zero to get me through the rest of the day, a sanctified beverage choice that has enough caffeine to push me on 
through the afternoon. And so I got to know, because it was pretty frequent that I would go to the same place, see the same clerk. We got to know each other. One day, I guess I was coming back from a funeral. I had a suit on. She looked at me and she said, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm the pastor at the church right down the road here. And she said, you're the pastor at the church? It's interesting that she said that because I've been your pastor for four months or so. And oftentimes people say, well, what brought you to Birmingham? And I would say, well, I'm working at Dawson. Well, what do you do at Dawson? And I say, well, I'm the pastor at Dawson. And very often they say, like the real pastor? <laughs> like the senior pastor? You know, just a lot of, when I was really young in the ministry, when I was 24, 25, I would move into the town and I was the pastor and I would, they would say, what do you do? And I would say, I'm the pastor. And then they would automatically say, well, I know you are a great youth pastor. And they would pat me on the head and do things like that. So one of these days, people are going to know, I guess I'm the pastor and I'm going to long for the days where, where they didn't, I guess, maybe. But uh, it's interesting, when I would talk to her, and we built up a conversation that one day that she asked, what do you do? And so we were talking. It was kind of a slow afternoon for her. And I said, hey, listen, I would love for you to come. The church is just right down the road. If you're not attending church, we'd love for you to come visit us one day. And she looked at me and she said, you know something? I would love to come to your church. But I've just got to get my life together before I ever come to your church or to any church for that means. And I thought to myself, you know something? She gets it. Like she, she really gets it. She, she gets, not that she has to get her life together to come to church, but that she doesn't have her life together. You see, the temptation for a lot of us is to feel like we've got it all together. And this is where Mary's song challenges all of us. Because this is what I said to that, that clerk there. Hey, listen, you don't have to get your life all together. The whole story of Christianity is God sending his son because spiritually none of us can get our act together. And Mary's song is this wonderful reminder of the gospel really before the coming of the gospel, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that you and me, we are saved by his grace. We are not saved by being good people. We're not saved by the ability for us to get our act together. And this is Mary's song. Mary is singing, if you say, I'm all in pieces and I can't get my act together, God will bring you together. But if you stand here this morning and you say, you know something, I've got it all together. God will scatter you. God will bring you down. This is the spiritual reversal of Mary's song here. And this is the hope that I hope all of you see in the Magnificat. The hope for all of us to hear this morning is, is that the Magnificat is not first and foremost for those of us in this room that feel like we've got it all together. In actuality, this song is a song that sings to us in, in, in the most beautiful way when we know that we don't have it all together. 
This song is for you when you fall flat on your face. This song is for you when you say things that you wish you could take back. This song is for you when you've done things that you aren't proud of. This song is a song of hope for those that have messed up one too many times. This song is a song of hope for the laid off and the hacked off. This song is a hope for the disappointed and the depressed. This song is a song of hope for those who don't have anywhere else to turn and know first and foremost that they do not have their act together. Because this is the story. This is the story of Christmas. That God would love the world. A world that he created so much and looked down upon and saw that all of humanity just would never, could never get their act together. But he would send his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're disappointed this morning, this song is for you. If you're wrestling with doubt this morning, this song is for you. If you're here this morning and you feel as if you just can't quite get everything together, this song is for you because it tells us that hope meets us in our most difficult times. And oftentimes, we miss the hope of our Savior because we're pretending that we've got it all together. And this morning might be the morning that you need to bend your knees before Holy Savior saying, today is the day that I quit pretending that I'm great. That I'm my own Savior. Hope meets us in our admission of need. Dad, when was the last time You told him that you needed him. Mother, when was the last time that you told your heavenly father that you needed him? Teenager, when was the last time that you bent your knees before him, a holy God, and said, I don't have it all together. Listen closely then. Because that's when you hear Mary's song singing to your soul. Let us pray. Maybe you're here today much more like Herod Pretending to make a kingdom, a kingdom upon this earth. Pretending I've got it all together. Posturing yourself in this prideful way, self-sufficient in every way. Maybe today is the day of repentance for you. Maybe you're here today in grief and doubt and disappointment. They walked with you into this sanctuary and you felt as if you gotta, you got to clean everything up. Get everything right. Then you'll fit in. You'll, you'll be loved by him. But today's the day to hear the song of Mary anew and afresh singing to you in your pain, singing to you in your need, singing to you in your desperation for him. May we all come before him 
admitting our need for him. God, speak to our hearts today. We are your children, desiring to be moved and shaped by you, our holy God. Thank you for this song that still sings to our soul. It's in your name we pray. Amen.